I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. This morning, I am joined by my good friend, the Palm Beach County drug czar, John Hulick. John, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast, and thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me here, Eric. So, John, you are employed by the Palm Beach County Board of County Commissioners. I can't believe I actually said that correctly. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. So let me ask you this question. Why does Palm Beach County require a drug czar? Well, as we know, the history of Palm Beach County, it had had a reputation in the past of being the epicenter of fraud and abuse nationally in the treatment sector. And at the time, around 2017, Palm Beach County was the epicenter of overdose deaths uh, in the state of Florida. In their wisdom, the board commissioned a consultant in 2017 to look at this issue, and they developed a opioid response plan that was adopted by the board in 2000, April 2017. The high-priority recommendation of that opioid response plan was to appoint a drug czar to lead the opioid epidemic response effort here in Palm Beach County. You said a lot of things there, and that's actually a really big statement. So I want to kind of go back and just take a look at the statement itself about South Florida being the epicenter of fraud and abuse in the treatment and sober homes industry. When you say the epicenter of abuse, can you expound a little bit more on that specifically? Well, fraud and abuse, I, I think uh, the, the black guy that was received by the sector were uh, was received because of fraudulent actors, uh, folks that were leveraging uh, urine drug screens to, to the effect of multi-millions of dollars. Uh, you had the Kenny Chapman case. I mean, these were high-profile cases, but that relationship between the sober home sector and the treatment sector was one that was clearly unhealthy. And even prior to that, you had the pill mill epidemic. So you had floods of individuals from out of state arriving into Palm Beach County securing prescription pills. And, you know, simultaneously, this explosion of uh, an expansion of treatment centers and their relationship with the, with the, with the sober home sector. It really is a strange sociological phenomenon because the evolution of the treatment industry, I will frequently refer to it as that we are living in the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment. Let me say it this way. 
The Florida model of treatment is actually a legit approach and an effective approach to the treatment of substance use disorders that has been adopted nationally and other places to pretty good effect. And it's the idea of separating the residences from the clinical offices. And what that allows you to do is to create a more real-life approach to the treatment of substance use disorders where the person is not living in a full institution, but they're living in an apartment that they have to clean. So all the life skills issues of shopping, cleaning, maintaining your space, you know, you get to address all those in a way that you might not if it was residential treatment in a more institutional setting where when you were in group or whatever, you had maids and staff coming behind you and cleaning and you were eating off a tray in a cafeteria or something like that. However, I think that the success of this model brought with it a lot of counterfeits that created a carbon copy of a carbon copy of a carbon copy of what was the original. Because I actually started my career at the beginning of all of that when there were only a handful of programs that did that. Karen Renaissance, the Wellness Resource Center, life skills, places like this that still maintain pretty good reputations. And over time, people copied those models, I think, for strictly profit motives. I shouldn't say that because it's not everyone. It's not everyone. And so I don't want to make blanket statements because I do believe there are a lot of very legitimate providers out there that are trying to do substance use disorder treatment, trying to help people. However, (laughs) however, there are other people too. And when the profit motive becomes so high because you can make so much money or there was a time that you could make so much money, the idea of going into it strictly for a profit motive and committing these fraudulent activities like what you were referring to, the sort of paying for referrals and insurance fraud abuses that were rampant. I think there was another issue of overpopulating these programs because that was the way to make them more profitable. You just kind of scale them up and now you have, you know, 300 people in one system of care where it's not manageable and it it starts to look more like a a small prison than it does a treatment environment and, and all of these kinds of things that took place. And it created a lot of problems down here and clearly got out of control. The little explanation I just gave is the half of it. There was a whole lot more than that, but I don't want to lose focus on you. But it created a problem because essentially when you have all of these programs down here importing severe cases of people with substance use disorders and co-occurring psychiatric disorders, not all of them are going to be successful in these systems of care. And what happens to the person that leaves the system of care and is now just homeless in Palm Beach County? What do you do with somebody like that? Well, they become the ward of the state. They become another homeless person with a lot of complex needs. And so essentially, as you're appointed by the board of county commissioners to find a solution to that problem, because we have more people with substance use disorders and psychiatric disorders per capita than anywhere else because we import them. 
if we're going to have any kind of an intelligent conversation about what's going on here, we have to own and accept that that is a truth. Absolutely. And as we well know, the the history, the reputation used to be the uh, Palm Beach County, South Florida was the recovery capital of the nation. The Mecca the, of recovery. The Mecca of recovery. And so uh, in a, a lot of my work, uh, you know, it, it is not just about restoring that reputation. It is really about a work and where our focus is. You know, this uh, I was very clear in my first appearance before the board of county commissioners i was probably six weeks in and very clear that we were going to move from a treatment centric uh, focus to a person-centered recovery oriented system of care and put some you know new meaning not new meaning but refreshed meaning into that environment that recovery environment and look our language is problematic uh, we refer to in our field treatment as an industry as if we're dealing with widgets and not people you know i don't know any other field in the helping profession that refers to itself as a you know as an industry i think in a sense you can also say like the healthcare industry you can say that the healthcare industry if you're looking at the manufacturing side of thing and healthcare equipment maybe but i hear medical profession or professionals in my view, has fed exactly what ended up happening, right? Folks that were establishing treatment centers that you scratch your head and say, what qualifications on earth did they even have to stand up, uh, you know, to stand up a treatment center? And to your point, in my earlier experiences, I, my first job in treatment was like 95. So the programs that I was involved in Hanley Hazelton, it was actually, it's the Hanley Center now, but it was a Hazelton at that time, the Wellness Resource Center, eventually Karen Renaissance. These were all programs that were very mission-oriented at their start. Michelle Michael and Sharon Carter, who founded the Wellness Resource Center, they were both recovering people who worked in the substance use disorder treatment industry. They both had jobs working in treatment and were involved. And so they were very mission-oriented. They were very clear about what they were trying to innovate. And they recognized that there was a space for now what was being recognized as co-occurring disorders. So they opened up this program in the hope of helping people, but also establishing a successful business. And they were very mission-oriented. And when you hear people getting involved who don't have the personal recovery background, who don't have the clinical background, you have to kind of ask yourself the question, what is it that has attracted this individual into this space? Why are they doing this? Well, I don't think we have to draw like a map to kind of figure out what that's about. I'm sure there are some people who legitimately saw the current events and the proliferation of the opioid epidemic and fentanyl and maybe have been personally touched by that that wanted to get involved. And there definitely are those people. But I think there are other people who saw the money and really run these programs in this kind of almost like lean business way where it's we're going to spend as little as possible to run this place and extract 
maximum profitability. And what does that mean? It's going to be understaffed by people who are not qualified to do the work. And that the important elements of treatment that actually result in effective outcomes are going to be shortcutted because they are not as profitable, like aftercare. And I was looking at your opiate response plan and your partnership with the healthcare district to establish the substance use disorder and co-occurring disorder steering committee. And I see intensive case management there as one of those elements. And I think that that is so important because what intensive case management is, it's the monitoring of people when they're outside of a treatment environment. So it's a lot easier to stay sober and stable when you're in the confines of a residential treatment center. Clinically, that is not as large of an accomplishment as it is when someone's in independent housing or supportive housing, kind of out there on their own, less monitored, and they're staying stable and sober doing that. And intensive case management helps fill in the gaps of service, of giving you that monitoring and support that helps a person when they're in those early phases of recovery, when they're more vulnerable and really kind of need that support of how to manage life on life's terms without substances when you have to deal with employment and the stresses of just everyday life that can really drive you to drink, drive you back into relapse, drive you to use, uh, promote instability psychiatrically. And the thing about intensive case management is it's expensive to offer. It could be costly to offer, not as costly as residential treatment. Nor as costly as jail. Thank you. Nor as costly as jail. And that's the thing about prevention strategies is you never know what you're preventing. So a lot of programs won't offer the intensive case management because it's not as profitable as like a residential program. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing. We're talking about the opioid response plan is 17. A high priority recommendation was higher than drugs are. A secondary recommendation was to um, form a, a steering committee. To, to guide the efforts uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the county. Of course, the focus then was on opioids. You know, and I was told, you're the opioid guy. You, you don't have to worry about the co-occurrence. And I just kind of went, okay. <laughs> of course, we know the, 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 the strong uh, um, uh, correlation between, between the two. So, um, the, the, and if you look at that 17 plan, the word recovery was not uttered at all in that plan. And so, um, and given my experience, and as you well know, I have a rich history in this space. Um, uh, you know, I had really landed in some, you know, period of time uh, in my career of a critical analysis of, you know, how do we get out of this vicious cycle uh, that where you're in in the vicious cycle, quite frankly, that ended up leading to the incredible amount of deaths that we um, were experiencing and, and frankly still continue to experience. So uh, we really had a stake in the ground moment here in, in Palm Beach County, and that was to move from treatment centricity to a person-centered recovery-oriented system of care with some very clear outcomes, because that's the other issue here, Eric. When you say it's effective, you know, my response back is always by what measure, because historically in this space, 
we haven't had really any meaningful outcome measures. Successful treatment discharge was the singular measure that still to this day, with billions of dollars expended annually in this space, is the singular measure of outcome. So the county and my work has been focused on oriented toward a more person-centered, meeting the person where they're at, rather than applying a cookie cutter and when they end up lapsing um, for a, a multitude of social determinant of health reasons, <laughs> you know, they end up lapsing. We uh, have the convenience and this, you know, are able to stigmatize people and say, what did you do wrong? Rather than critically look at the system and say, how can we improve? And our aim in the county is to improve long-term recovery outcomes. Well, that's a pretty huge mountain to climb when historically all we've ever measured is is um, successful uh, treatment discharge. So when you talk about the ASU or um, our, one of our main initiatives is to um, build out a network of recovery community centers throughout the county, um, I view those as pieces to a puzzle because I see a system. I don't see various systems because in a recovery-oriented system of care where the person is at the center of that care, there is absolutely a lot of services available to that individual. There's just no one really navigating that with that individual, right? And we expect them to navigate these kind of silo systems all by themselves and as you've suggested that is uh they're they're they are stressful times particularly in um particularly in early recovery so what you call icm or intensive case management part of our systems model because we're we're orienting toward the system but we're also and i'm also operating from a systems model critical to that model is an overlay of what we call neutral care or icm if you might intensive case management where there's a neutral level of care determination um, and then a set of eyeballs in essence it's managed care without um, profit motive at heart it's truly uh, an advocacy measure on behalf of the client Um, and and it's not only um, authorizing treatment, but following that individual right into the non-clinical environment. Because they're, look, the, the research is clear in terms of long-term recovery outcome, right? And it's it's housing stability. It's not housing, right? Stability. is Are they in a stable housing situation? It's, it's uh, employment. There's a strong family or societal connection. Um, and then there's also a spiritual or altruistic piece to that as well. And then there's, frankly, a pecking order uh, within that. Also, um, now the provider will tell you often that length of stay is to predict or to outcome. It's not. It's length of engagement. It's not how long do I stay in one environment. It's how long can I be engaged in care. I don't even call it treatment anymore. I call it care, you know, and I'm, I don't even like to use the term continuum. You know, that that in essence, it's too linear. <laughs> you know, recovery is not a really a, a linear process. We just keep on putting folks in some line and there are certain expectations um, uh, around that. I think that that's a really important point. And in my mind, as I was kind of preparing to talk to you about this, I wanted to engage that because historically the advent of treatment-based recovery 
has created this kind of dichotomy of a few different things, which is one, this relapse mentality, where it really is this kind of zero-sum game. You're either sober or you failed. Essentially, you're either sober or you're a big loser. You know what I mean? And even if it's not stated directly, and I don't really mean that about the big loser thing. I don't think anyone who is compassionately trying to help other people believes that. But even if it's not stated directly, there is a tacit implication that if you relapsed, you have in some way failed. And that failing may be the result of like some moral failing on your part, that you have not embodied the program principles in the correct way. And so you get into that and it's it could be very shame-based for people. And I talk to people about this who experience it all the time, that when there's a relapse, there's a reluctance to enter the system because you the first thought is, I failed these people and their shame, and I don't want to experience that. I think these more modern approaches, like what you're talking about, or I should say, let's to not offend anybody, let's just call them alternative approaches, like a different look at something, right? It really seeks to take that element out of it. Looking at recovery not as a linear process, but more like an ongoing process where relapse really is part of the process to the point where we maybe even stopped utilizing that term so much. Uh, Because so, you know, I like some of the changes in terminology where it goes from being relapse, the client relapsed or the person relapsed to he had a use event. Because on the whole, if if it's that dichotomous look at recovery, and so we're, we're looking at someone's behavior over the course of a year, and let's say they spent 10 months of the last 12 months not using or not using in a severe way as they had before they entered treatment, and they had four or five of these use events that lasted X period of time, that still in a way is success in a big way if you're looking at someone who was using habitually on a daily basis. And that's that whole harm reduction philosophy. I think it's really hard for a lot of more traditional providers to wrap their minds around. A lot of uh, my work you know, isn't new conceptually or philosophically or empirically. Um, I just critically approached it and was really kind of taking the best thinking over time and you know the challenge at one point in my career was when I really had had it with this field you know uh, I had a, a colleague and friend say well John if you could do something different what what could you what would you think you what would what would that look like and it was some site level work at the time and um you know, when I started my work here in Palm Beach County, it was how do I take this site level work and uh, ha- allow that to inform more of a systems approach? So a lot of my work is a, a systemic approach to uh, uh, to the work. Um, and, and mainly, you know, if our aim is to improve long-term recovery outcome, this gets to your point, is how do you measure that, 
right? Now, the idea of recovery capital is not new. I mean, this is 20 years plus old, you know, um, statistically evidenced. You know, when I first familiarized with, you know, and I'm getting the tinglys now because it began to answer the question of how do we measure efficacy or quote unquote success. Now, look, I'm a you know, I'm a 12-stepper. On March 12th, I celebrated 37 years. And I, I have every reason to be happy for people when they go into a 12-step environment and succeed. Can we stop for a moment and give a little love? 37 years? <laughs> yeah. Not been, bad. Not, not, not bad. Not bad. But I am a product of more than just 12 steps. I have had a lot of help along the way, professionally, spiritually, and otherwise, to even stay on this side of the green, you know. And I did get sober at 12. So, nice. <laughs> so anyway, um, but th- that, that real challenge is, you know, how do we measure this? And, and when, when they finally could operationalize these comp- concepts and, you um, you know, our our move in Palm Beach County away from a singular uh, successful treatment discharge into really what is a, it is a substance agnostic instrument called Reco- recovery capital indexing, you know, and within it are 68 in- indicators, three domains, and and all of those are predictive of a longer term recovery outcome. And it doesn't Ask the question, have you used or not used? Not what substance you're using, uh, you know, anything to that effect. I actually had an opportunity to see David Best speak. And for those of you who are unaware, David Best is also part of this recovery capital movement. He does uh, a lot of research and has written and spoken on the subject. And I think he works out of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I think that's where he he publishes out of and stuff. So he's lecturing uh, to this group of Palm Beach County substance use disorder treatment providers. And he asked this question. It's an amazing question. He says, what is the number one enemy of recovery? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, probably drugs. I don't know. <laughs> and he says, um, he says, the number one enemy of recovery is daytime television. <laughs> he says, daytime television is the number one enemy of recovery. Because if you've reached a point where you're just watching mindless nonsense in the middle of the day, you're probably not engaged socially. You're probably not engaged in meaningful relationships on a daily basis. You're probably not engaged in meaningful activity. You may not be in a, a very spiritual place. I'm not saying that people who watch TV during the day have no spiritual background, but I'm just saying like, it, I get his point. It resonated immediately without any further explanation that when people are devoid of meaningfulness in their lives, that existential vacuum where there's no meaningful relationships, there's no meaningful activity, I don't feel industrious, I don't feel worthwhile, and... I don't have anything that I care about if I lost it. And that was really the point. And I'll tell you, hearing that from him was paradigm shift for me. And this is this is me having worked in the field for like 18 years, 19 years, and then hearing him. And it really moved the needle, re- really made me think very differently about what it what the pursuit 
should be if you're trying to help someone with a substance use disorder. Right. We're often in investigating and exploring pathology or, you know, and I call it, it's an acute intervention, you know, if, and if it is that, I view it more as a stem the bleeding moment and it's a stabilization moment. You know, it's not the end of the game. It's the beginning of a foundation for life. Right. And, um, you know, for so in Palm Beach County, as we've retooled our behavior health contracts, uh, we have rid ourselves of successful treatment discharge as a measure. You are now expected to do a baseline recovery uh, capital index parallel because I'm not being dismissive of treatment. They're clearly uh, clinical acute needs. There's a treatment plan that's always been required. Uh, but we're also requiring a parallel recovery plan. And then we're measuring whether you have successfully handed off someone to a recovery community center. Uh, and that recovery capital indexing is a 30-day measure. So the anticipation expectation is we will see on that scale uh, improvements uh, you know, in each one of those uh, domains. And I've applied uh, research, Florida Atlantic University, to our work. And we are really, for the first time in this field, and I've been around a long time, you know, particularly in the policy setting arena, we are beginning to able, we are beginning to be able to isolate certain indicators. I'm sorry to interrupt. Who are you working with over there? Heather Howard and Wendy uh, Gustaferro out of School of Social Work and Criminal Justice. Oh, nice. I figured it would probably be that. They seem to be more forward-thinking in the space of substance use disorders and social work. And I know a couple of really awesome providers that have come out of that, that program, and they tend to be more steeped in this kind of ideology. I had uh, John Pulse on the podcast couple months back and he's another one that had that training and tends to think more globally not someone who's completely had their career bred by the substance use disorder treatment industry but there's like a broader context to it all and consequently his program is a case management program you know it's private but it's still he does a lot of that case management work and does a lot of that follow-up work with these kind of uh, chronic cases. So it's kind of interesting. Right, or the hard to serve. So in our systems model, the addiction stabilization unit, you know, is is a, a, a part of uh, uh, the initiative. But hold on a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to come back to that because are you talking about the stabilization unit at JFK? All right, I read about that in your executive, um, your executive summary. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, why you're doing it. First and foremost is to address the overdose situation and the point of contact in terms of where to transport that individual is the, it's really a, a trauma center for, for, for addiction. Right. So let's, let's kind of pause on that because we're talking about the trauma center for addiction in the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. So this is pretty important <laughs> that JFK Hospital, which is, where's that located? North uh, 45th. On 45th Street in West Palm Beach. They actually opened up a specific unit for addressing the needs of people who, like a trauma unit for people who were at risk from recent overdose. So they're, uh, they're reviving these people. And what other kind of services are they offering there? So it's stabilization. You know, for, so they have to be medically stabilized. 
and then the they the individuals that 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 arrive there will then once medically stabilized in ER um, be transferred over to the addiction stabilization unit. So they're doing the you know initial level of care determinations, introduction of MAT. It's the answer to treat and street right. Um, which um, one of the street and street street and street so in other words when you arrive in an er you get stabilized and then you're sent back on the street so i want to mention something about that to kind of color that statement because it's a very important i've never heard that term before but i knew exactly what you were talking about when you said it historically in palm beach county because there is so much need there are so many people with substance use disorders and again we import them so we have more per capita in this area than other places in the country and a lot of them are no longer parts of the systems of care that brought them down here so you have it is not unusual for one of our local er's to get 10 overdoses in a weekend. I mean, if you have a bad batch of fentanyl that's kind of circulating around, one person overdoses from it, it's like the flu, you know? I mean, clearly, like an epidemic. One person gets it, a bunch of other people are going to get it too. And so you'll have 10 people going into an ER, and that becomes the work of the ER. And it has become almost impossible for these hospital systems to kind of capture this and get these people referred quickly into other environments of care to prevent this from happening again. And our ability to react to that occurrence very often, I believe, is the difference between life and death. Because you could have somebody who is so impaired by their opioid addiction that they're going to go into an ER to be revived and stabilized, and they will walk out and they will use the exact same substance that put them in the ER and overdose again. And they'll, they'll, they'll rip out their IVs before they walk out. They'll rip out. Yeah, they're like, all right, I feel better. I'm out. Let me go get my stuff. And people don't necessarily understand when we talk about epidemic, that's the level of pathology that you're dealing with and that we need, we just need to keep evolving, essentially. Right. And so from uh, the acutest of the acutest, you know, the overdose situation, the, the idea uh, and the operation of the ASU is an important piece of the puzzle, if you might, right? Because it's really tending to the acutest of the acute need, right? Which is the overdose situation. It also functions as a walk-in as well. It's uh, a higher cost intervention. So we're looking at, you know, um, adjusting our single point of contacts uh, across the, the, the county, in terms of those that aren't in um, acute distress like that. And and understanding that it's not just JFK, it's JFK and it's ER um, in partnership with the healthcare district, which over the last number of years has entered into the uh, SUD and behavioral health space in a very big way, um, which is really important. Um, and they have developed a, a high level of um um, expertise uh, in in this um, in this area, so that um, the individuals that are then stabilized and um, MAT is induced are then engaged in the healthcare district. But look, those situations are you know are constantly bringing to the fore the the deficits that we have in, in our system, and those deficits aren't 
uh, around treatment capacity. Folks always argue we need more treatment. And, you know, the idea that someone would um, drink one day and have to go to detox the next is which literally happens. You know, it's a high level, high cost intervention and, and folks are occupying, uh, you know, uh, the detox uh, capacity with zero withdrawal scores. I mean, you know, there's lots of flaws and this is just not unique to Palm Beach County. I mean, we have structured this system across the board. To your point of something that you had said earlier, and we've covered so much ground in such a short time that I'll probably need to bring you back here so we can cover these things in, in more detail. But one of the things you said in the index of recovery capital, stable housing, right? So when you talk about somebody who drinks one day and how that may impact your recovery sort of capital indexes as opposed to medical need, we may treat you like someone who has a medical need. Well, send them to detox, but actually we're not really talking about a medical need. We might be talking about a sudden housing problem because if you were living in some form of recovery environment maybe a transitional housing or a three-quarter way house or a house where people don't like you when you're drinking because you behave really horribly so now are you a person who needs medical intervention no are you a person who needs a place to stay yes Exactly. And again, how we've structured our system is exactly in the ways that you suggest it. And literally along the way, no measures of success other than I get to claim 37 years. But, you know, that that is not by some singular event or, you know, interventions in my own life. And I would probably suggest that that's true of many people that have managed not to, to, to lapse over a, a period of time. So our work is very systemic, you know, so even the ER intervention, rush a peer into the ER room, and, and that's the solution to this problem. You know, the, I, I view those as programmatic in, interventions, but they're not systemic interventions. You know, they might be pieces to the puzzle like the ASU and the healthcare district, our network of providers. They're all pieces to the puzzle, but it's really where our orientation is and how are we measuring and how do we arrive at a longer term recovery um, outcome? Because they're, you know, look, they're, they're flaws, deep flaws in the way that we manage a lap. So I, I don't use the term treatment anymore. I use care. I don't use sober home. I use transitional living. If you look at those key predictors of success, housing, stability, and employment, when someone's arriving toward a discharge moment, they're basically left to fend for themselves, right? Provider has gotten paid. You know, the discharge plan magically looks like the discharge plan from, you know, the other clients within the setting and probably looks like the discharge plan from a decade ago. And so on those key predictors, we squarely place the burden, those um, key predictors of outcome um, on the the backs of the newly recovering individual. And we expect them to succeed. This has long been a criticism of mine, and it's the result of experience of working in the system, is that programmatically in the treatment space, a lot of the emphasis is placed on the front end. And it, I believe that that's the case because it's the one that has the highest level of reimbursement. So if you're thinking, 
you know, at the detox level of care, you're getting $2,000 a day or whatever it is from an insurance reimbursement. That's profit money if you're pushing that across the board to a 30-bed unit or something. You know, that's that's a lot of money. On the But where we really need to be focusing our energy is on the back end, which is what do we do for these people when they are discharged from residential care? What kind of services are they getting there? Or do they even need residential care? Because uh, where I've been informed in our overlay of uh, what we call, again, neutral care coordination is a 25 plus year history in New Jersey of a similar system as an overlay to the hard to serve welfare to work population. So the aim of the project, you know, now 25 years old was to remove addiction and subsequently mental health concerns as a barrier to employment. After 25 years, 125,000 neutral assessments by master's level clinicians, 84% of those determinations were in the outpatient setting, only 14% in residential. So just um, for you folks out there that are listening, if you noticed, my guy is pretty quick on the trigger with the stats. Um, one thing I failed to mention while I was stumbling through my introduction of Mr. Hulick here is that John Hulick was the former drug czar of the state of New Jersey, handpicked by Governor Christie at the time, handpicked by the governor. Not bad. And so, yeah, man, you're, like, you're clearly a guy who is really well informed about this stuff. So, again, I, I appreciate you kind of bringing it back to these sort of criticisms of the treatment center industry as it exists today, because I think in a sense, things need to change. And I think um, whether that if if we're going to say that these programs are effective, that people need to be more invested in improving it. And if we're going to say, if we're going to say that these programs are effective, then people need to demonstrate that by empirical proof. And there's a lack of that. And if we're going to make these things effective, we also need to look at the back end of what the needs are of these clients, these people who are coming from these environments of care, and how are they going to be supported in the community? Whose responsibility is that to offer those services to these people? Right. And and so the concepts of recovery orientation are, again, as I've suggested already, you know, definitions, uh, evidence, it, it's not new. Um, but I've been a policymaker, right? I've been in a policymaking environment for all of my career, for the most part. Um, if the money doesn't follow the mouth, why mouth it? So, um, even though we've oriented ourselves toward this recovery focus at the federal level, when I was starting my work here in Palm Beach County, and I hadn't really looked at the federal budget in a few years or longer, um, I was shocked to see the primary funder in this space uh, federally is the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. What I found at the time was of this, you know, and I'm looking for how do I fund our work here in Palm Beach County other than county tax dollars, $6 billion in monies appropriated by the federal uh, agency um, only, and they have for 20 years talked about recovery focus. Where did that money go? 95% of it goes to treatment 
two specific programs, one called Recovery Community Services Program, the other one Building Communities of Recovery. Guess how much is appropriate for those two federal programs out of $6 billion? How much? It's now $12 million. At the time, I think it was $6 million. I work with Congresswoman Frankel's office to increase that appropriation, but still... Uh, it, it really proves the point. And, and again, that's not unique just to the feds. It's unique. It, it, it happens at the state, uh, you know, at the state level and the local levels as well. And again, I folks uh, think I'm anti-treatment. I am for all the treatment that one needs. I know that you are. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you. Because part of the problem that we have here with this is the same problem that we have with every other discussion in our country, which is somehow or other, it gets polarized. So if you're a community uh, treatment advocate, if you're you know on this side of it, then you're anti-rehab. And if you're a rehab guy, you know if you work in the residential treatment, then you're anti-community. I think there's a space for both to exist and probably we need to focus a little bit more on coming together and partnering and working together and accepting these other programs that have alternative points of view that are maybe different than where I was trained and oriented and maybe keep a little bit more of an open mind because the lack of cooperation here is killing people. Well, one of the highlighted points within the first plan, the 17 plan, the board in November uh, adopted a subsequent plan, what we now call our master plan, which does incorporate uh, mental health and co-occurring disorders. So it's a much broader scope. The board also in November uh, memorialized and established a formal advisory committee. So we're now statutorily required to produce an annual master plan plan to the board. Now, folks might sound like think think that sounds very governmentese. I've been around a long time. You, you know, to have that kind of authority now with a plan that's required and when you have plans in place, you can start to budget with respect to the plan, right? So one follows the other. And you know, where where I'm aiming is the 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 main aim is improve long term recovery outcome. The launch of that was launching of recovery capital indexing, but we're not going to stop there. I've uh, expanded the scope of work of FAU to further look at not only process measurements. In other words, are we doing what we say we're going to do? One that's called process, but. Also, how do we, what other outcomes measures can we be looking at? We're not only informing work here in Palm Beach County, our work is informing the nation. You know, we're really at the tip of the spear of not just mouthing recovery orientation, but putting meat on the bones. When we have invested, you know, uh, made significant, significant investments, not only in outcome measure, but also in our network of recovery community centers, because engagement is important. You can't continue to engage someone in a clinical environment. They live outside of a clinical environment. It's hard to argue when master's level neutral assessors are saying after 125,000 assessments over 25 years, 84% of them are outpatient. It's kind of hard to argue we need to be investing 84% of our money in residential settings, right? And you know it's a less costly intervention. And the question, Eric, begins then, 
How, where do we reorient our expenditures? I call them investments. The, the smart thing to do if we're going to achieve the outcome is to invest them in supportive housing and affordable housing and transitional living and getting creating housing capacity that there's actually regulatory teeth associated with it. Uh, we have a Florida Association of Recovery Residents. That's the model that's pretty consistent across the nation, but it's a self-regulated sector, industry, if you might. Pennsylvania, uh, a few years ago, created a regulatory scheme uh, for the sober home environment. Look at the cost of that, right? I mean, folks that are getting discharged, have to find a job. It's, you know, we've created systemic barriers with drug fines, right? Or you have a, you have a felony and you got a drug conviction. You, you can't get into a normal apartment, right? We've just piled one thing after another uh, on an individual and say, go succeed because I've treated you. <laughs> you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. And if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. We're one of the good guys. You know, we do good work. And my response is, I have no reason to doubt that unless you've been indicted, you know. But by what measure? By what measure are you saying that you're a good program? Because I know it's not just about them. It's about a field for 40 years that has been able to exist and get paid for for something for something <laughs> thank you for filling in the blanks i was looking at you for <laughs> i'm a in a sense my career in a way is a product of that and I, I do believe in the work and in in the same way that you are saying that the community care system in Florida and the, the, the kind of work that you're doing is, is sort of, it, it leads the nation in a way. It provides an example because we're further along because we've had to be. I, I also can argue in a way, and I, I know it may be a less favorable argument, but like as far as the residential models and the quality of individual clinicians that work in them here, I think I would put them up against anybody anywhere in the country. And I could say that uh, based on experience because I know people who are CEOs and whatever of treatment programs in other parts of the country essentially were imported from Florida because these other places don't have the kind of systems of care and training that builds stronger management when you're trying to run a program in wherever other part of the country can't find competent people who understand like even what the goal of residential treatment is well most of our appropriations are definitely within the treatment scope and in the residential treatment environment but there's no statistical evidence ever that suggests an automatic 90 day stay anywhere is efficacious it just doesn't exist in fact the research shows there's a plateau within that environment where someone is at the the absolute maximum of anything they can achieve in that environment and it's about 21 days it's not even 28 days you know the the the, the key is again in these longer term you know measures and engagements not length of stay it's length of engagement and 
it, look, you know my history, and I'm going. I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a rant here now. Okay, so I'm just warning you, right? Prior to Christie, I spent 16 years with the National Council on Alcohol and Drug Dependence, all in the policy sector, policy space. I'm the architect of licensure and certification in the state of New Jersey for addiction counselors, right? Absolute the architect of that. I'm about eight years sober at the time. And literally, you know this history, someone could hang a shingle on their door and say they were an alcoholism counselor because they were a person in recovery. I would get the calls saying, Hulick, what are you doing to me? You know, and I'm like, the idea of training never entered your mind. And I have never felt like my recovery has owed me a darn thing. I am not entitled to anything because I'm a person in recovery. In fact, I owe society because I'm a person in recovery. So this uh, this idea that that automatically equates to uh, experience in a, a clinical environment, you know, that's why we go to school. It's why we get educated. But, you know, I, I heard a person in this field at one point talk about the, the soft bigotry of low expectation. Explain that. That's a really cool term, actually. Isn't it? The idea that the going to school and, and becoming educated becomes something that's so not possible. Instead, we, we, we hijack a population of folks. Uh, they become behavioral health techs. They feed the industry and the mechanics, and they're just a, a cog in the wheel of the whole deal, yet there's no promotional opportunity. And if they're not in the field, they're, they're left to low wage uh, jobs and 90, you know, no disposable income because they're in a cash situation to keep a roof over their head in a sober home environment. That was a big part of what David Best was saying. And he actually compared recidivism rates among people with substance use disorders to those leaving correctional institutions. And it was a really, really, again, eye-opening stuff where he said a big part of building in motivation to sustain yourself in recovery is that you have something meaningful in life that's an alternative to using drugs. The same thing, like you also need a meaningful engagement to avoid crime. So if there's no financial opportunities, if there's no training, if there's no opportunity for a better life than the life you've previously experienced, buying into what you said, the low wage, our working class system in America, which is not even what it used to be, right? I mean, it's poverty. That's It's not necessarily going to sustain someone to motivate them to want to live that life. And it's the adage of, I come from this community where my only opportunity was working at McDonald's or becoming a drug dealer. Which one did I choose? One pays substantially better than the other, even though it comes with risk. Same kind of thing. We have to build into the system motivation for these people. When I meet people who are behavioral health techs that have three, four years sober, people who are managers of, you know, transitional housing environments, people who have even, you know, kind of gone past that, gotten CAP certifications, gotten 
entry into school for advanced degrees. Look at yourself, man. Do you understand how important you are? Because of the thousands of people that come to South Florida seeking sobriety and recovery, trying to make this into the mecca of their recovery, um, how many of those people ended up like you? You know, how many of them got what you got? And it's so important that we have people like that serving as an example of what is possible and, to your point, the right way to do it. The end result of my work is not going to be a 100% success rate. I will feel complete in the work when I believe that an individual has a 100% opportunity for success, which is very different. So in other words, those barriers, and some of them aren't, aren't Palm Beach County-centric, but the county received a, a, a federal grant project in the um, criminal justice space, and we are allowed to use a, a, a large portion of the grant for housing. And it was my first opportunity to go into the housing space and start to tease it out, and it's where we've partnered with FAU. you know. And again, we found really critical pieces of information from an outcomes perspective. That's what I was suggesting earlier, where we're able to begin to isolate. But you want evidence, right? You got to have statistical confidence. I get that part of the equation. I don't want to create a system that people say, well, it's only because John Hulick said so. Like my, my word is as good as it just came out of my mouth. I've been around enough to know you've got to create some research base. And so we've got those underpinnings. But the narrative, the anecdotes within this project are just your head wants to explode because these are systemic barriers, what we've done to this population. I'm just going to give you a quick example, drug fines. The tens of thousands of dollars in drug fines that folks are being released from prison. It's just astronomical. Uh, There's just no way on earth anyone can overcome those. Yet this is, you know, in your face. You can't get housing because of a felony, right? So we've got to create other opportunity. But in the drug fine space, Half of those fines have stayed the same. 27% of them have increased, and there have been some that actually seen fine reduction. So you're out, you're sober, you're housed, you've got a peer support, you've got a flex fund to help you with glasses if you need to get a set of glasses. But this monster called drug fines is a is a bear. So the, you know this is the kind of systemic barriers that are in place. We're going to put it in our research. But changing that is levels well above Palm Beach County. You know, at the end of the day, John, the most important thing that any of us can do is to keep the conversation alive and keep it going and to continue to be an advocate and to continue to bring attention to these things like like what you you're doing and, you know, what you and I spend a little time on today. I think that's really it. But I really want to thank you for coming out here today. I know you're a busy guy. You're involved in a lot of things, clearly. It's really cool to hear about what you guys are doing, this actual, in a more granular way, the level of systems that have been established over the last five years. I just want to thank you so much for coming out here and sharing your experience and your thoughts and your ideas and work with me and whoever happens to listen to this. I feel like it was great. Excellent. Thanks for having me here. Good